So welcome. We're excited about the scriptures today. I'm really excited about talking about the contention that Joseph Smith had to deal with and how he handled that contention. And I'm interested in kind of digging into the, the first vision a little bit more and looking at it not just as kind of the inauguration of the restoration, but really what can we learn about the nature of God and how Joseph Smith prepared himself for that event. Maybe a big word is pedagogy, but I actually love learning how Joseph Smith learned and how he was able to teach as a result of his learning and that yeah. gathering of wisdom that he had. Before we get into our discussion, maybe we should follow up. Yeah, quick. let's yeah. do it. So we're talking about Joseph Smith history, uh, specifically 1, 1 through 26. We're going to talk about how Joseph Smith grew up in a very religious family, a very supportive family. We're going to look at the excitement that was happening regarding religion in that area that he was growing up in. He's obviously confused a little bit during this time. He reads James 1, 5, that one should ask of God to seek wisdom. He sees Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in a pillar of light. And when he sees Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father, he is told to hear him by the Father to the Son and the importance of us listening to Jesus Christ. And he's also talking to him about the church that is going to be restored in the future. Mm -hmm. So we're going to focus in on three specific things, but I hope you feel uh, welcome to, to share your insights on any of these and other things as well. We're going to focus in on standing for truth while avoiding contention and see if we can learn some lessons from Joseph Smith dealing with affliction. We're going to talk about seeking wisdom and what is the best way to approach asking questions of God. And then ask, what can we learn from the first vision? So in order to do that better, we have invited a wonderful guest today, Scott Esplin. And if Scott, if you would mind joining us yeah, up here, welcome, we'd appreciate Scott. it. Sure. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so awesome. much. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Spencer, are you okay if we take your dad for a second? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> Scott is a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He is the publications director for the Religious Studies Center. And he has also worked on and written a lot about 20th century uh, doctrine and covenants and church history. So Scott, thank you again. You're perfect for this, for this show today. Hey, thank glad you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks great. for having me. So maybe we can, we can jump right into the first topic, which is standing for truth while avoiding contention. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a historical background. Uh, what's going on in Joseph Smith's life leading up to uh, the first vision? How does contention relate to this? And maybe just give us a little bit of context. I think there's several elements of contention we should think about when we study the accounts of the first vision. Mm. Of course, there is the religious revivalism that mm -hmm. uh, engulfs his community. He's living near Palmyra, New York. Mm -hmm. And the religious revivals that encompass that region engulf him um, and, and eventually engulfs his family. Mm -hmm. So each different religious group would, would attract various converts. Those same divisions um, impacted his family as well. They started to, to divide. Some going, uh, his mother and, and, and several of the, of the siblings uh, attracted to the Presbyterian faith. Uh, his father and others uh, not affiliating with, with any particular church. We might also keep in mind that in addition to the, the contention that occurred at the time of the first vision, um, there is contention and difficulty in, at the time of the recording of the accounts of the first vision. Mm -hmm. And that is somewhat reflected in the accounts themselves. So, so the account we have in our Pearl of Great Price um, was recorded in 1838. That was a very difficult year for the prophet Joseph Smith himself. Uh, he had lost a number of close and dear friends that had apostatized from the church. He'd faced some, some opposition to his uh, accounts of his story and the, and the founding of the church. And so I think some of that is reflected in the account as we mm -hmm. have it, is the contention that occurred when he was a 14-year-old boy, but also the contention that's occurring now nearly 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I, I love how you brought up the family. I, I think a lot of times we think of Joseph Smith and we think of this extremely supportive family that he had, which he did. But I love how you brought up that you know, they were all coming from a, from a different perspective. I mean, his father from a different perspective than his mother. And I frankly hadn't really thought about what it would have been like for Joseph to be making these important decisions with, with even within his mom and dad and his siblings going one direction or another. 
We see that in the community, yes, but in, even in his own family at the young age, I think it, that must have really been weighing on him. And we should acknowledge, I think, his parents are always supportive of him. Sure. Even though they're having their own different religious leanings, um, they're supportive of him and his own desires to find truth. And, and that's one thing I love in that family. That family is uh, fiercely loyal to each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's a question regarding this topic right now. Hi, we're the Jarman family from Queen Creek, Arizona. Our question is, how can we relate how Joseph Smith dealt with contention in his time to how we deal with people with different faiths and opinions in our time? I, I love some of the things that come from the First Vision account itself. Yeah. Uh, of course, he's seeking, he's searching. Um, how can we deal with contention? I, I, as you mentioned, I, I think we can learn a lot of things from Joseph Smith as a learner. And so he turns to Scripture. Um, he turns to trusted family members and friends. I, I love a phrase in, in the Pearl of Great Price where it says uh, he kept himself aloof from the various parties. Yeah. Um, though he attended many of their meetings, he's clearly searching, he's interested, he's seeking. But he wants to get confirmation from God, not from man. And, uh, and, and until he can get that confirmation from God, he doesn't want to commit himself anywhere. Of course, there's a number of lessons that come after the first vision about how he dealt with contention. Uh, obviously, shortly after the first vision, he tries to share it with those whom he thought he could trust. And he found that they shut him down very quickly. You'll notice in the 1838 account that he says, speaking of how he dealt with the contention, I've often found myself feeling like Paul. And, uh, and I think sometimes when we're struggling or dealing with contention or, or opposition, we can find people in the scriptures with whom we can resonate. Uh, and, and Joseph clearly resonates with Paul. It's not just in this account. It's multiple instances across his life where Joseph finds himself gravitating to Paul. And so I, I think the idea of finding a good scripture hero, someone in, in, in the scriptures with whom we can relate. Mm. And, and then, of course, uh, I love that he, he gets this confidence that he can always turn to God in prayer. Uh, the, the, uh, the, this, this portion of the account in uh, Joseph Smith history ends with this phrase, I had found the testimony of James to be true, that a man who lacked wisdom might ask of God. So uh, when we face contention, when we face difficulty, um, we should turn to trusted loved ones. We should turn to our scriptures and, and look for scriptural heroes there. But then also rely on the things that we've learned for ourselves. Uh, Joseph Smith had learned that the testimony of James was true. Um, he could turn to God and obtain an answer. And in my experience, uh, criticism of my testimony hasn't come so much from people outside of the church as it has sometimes from people inside of the church yeah. because maybe I don't, and really anybody, maybe look like the ideal member of the church or something like that. And I think it's important to remember, um, just not only for other people but for myself, that discipleship can look different for different people, that we come from different cultures and different upbringings. And as a result of that, sometimes the way we express our commitment to Christ looks different, and that's okay. Um, you know, the beauty of this image of the body of Christ is that we all are different and yet we can all contribute. Yeah, absolutely. President Packer has a great quote and he said, you do three things. You love them, you love them, and you love them. And I think Joseph Smith is a great example of that. There's a, a wonderful story with W.W. Phelps. The relationship between W.W. Phelps and Joseph Smith was strong for a while, but then W.W. Phelps really caused some major problems for Joseph. It became so difficult that W.W. Phelps actually ends up leaving the church. Uh, he writes letters and things that causes Joseph some major problems. And there comes a time when, when W.W. Phelps kind of realizes what he has done. And he writes actually to Joseph asking for forgiveness from Joseph. And for many of us, we would say, you know what, W.W. Phelps, you kind of destroyed my life. You've hurt the church. You've caused many people to have major problems, but Joseph doesn't respond that way. He basically says, you know, you, you, have, you have caused some, some problems with us, but 
friends at first or friends at last. And he says, come on, dear brother. Clearly, there is this understanding of love that Joseph has for all people. And he is not willing to hold a grudge. Just like we see with many prophets, Nephi being quick to forgive his brothers, Joseph was quick to forgive those who offended him as well. Yeah. Uh, anybody else in the audience, is there something you'd like to share or something that you've learned from Joseph Smith? Um, in the history, when he's 14 years old and he's talking about looking at other churches and he talks about that their good feelings between the priests and the converts were more pretended than real. And so even at the age of 14, he is recognizing how you need to be genuine, that you really need to love. And I think it's a great point for us. Our world is very contentious and we are still called upon every day to make sure that we are loving everybody. It doesn't matter if they are in our little group or if they're outside of our group, that we love them all. Thank you, a great comment. So thank you, this has been a great, a great discussion on standing for truth while avoiding contention. Joseph Smith is a great example of that. We'd like to start our next topic today and it's looking at the patterns of seeking wisdom. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, as you've looked through these, this part of Joseph Smith history, what did you learn about learning and seeking wisdom? Yes, please. So when you read it uh, in the Joseph Smith history, you get an impression that Joseph read James 1.5, and then I don't know how much time, you know, between that time and then he goes into the grove and prays and had this incredible vision. So what kind of preparation or, you know, things that he has done leading up to the first vision? I think there's a phrase in the 1838 account that speaks a little bit to your question. Um, when Joseph says that he read uh, James 1.5, it says, I reflected on it again and again. I think that indicates that there, there's likely some time that passes between when he reads that, that verse. I also love something in, in one of the earlier accounts of the first vision. There's an, an 1832 account of the first vision where Joseph Smith says, this led me to searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contained the word of God and thus applying myself to them. Um, he'd been taught by good parents, by friends, by, by maybe other preachers or others, that he could trust the scriptures. And, uh, and so he knew that that was where he should turn for his answers. Now, I don't believe, based on the context, that he reads James 1 and walks to the grove the next morning. Um, he seems to reflect on it again and again over a period of time, realizing this, this applies to him. In fact, in verse 13 as well, on that same, on that same topic, he says, at length, Mm -hmm. I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. It seems that Joseph Smith was studying. He recognized that the Bible did have answers to his prayers. He recognized that the scriptures were, in a sense, a light and a way for him to, to be able to act on things. In fact, one of the beautiful things about Joseph Smith going into this sacred grove is he went in with the intention of acting upon whatever answer he got. And I, I know we know that, but he doesn't just say which church is true. But as we know, he says, which church should I join? He is ready to act upon whatever God does. And I think that that perhaps comes as, as you're asking in that question, which is phenomenal, is that was part of his preparation. He had learned to trust in the Lord in some way from watching his parents, from watching his grandparents. He knew that God was going to give him an answer. Did he know he was going to have a first vision experience? I don't think so. But did he expect an answer from the Lord? Yes. And we see that even stronger in the future that he is expecting an answer from the Lord. The things that I really took from it was the fact that he had that environment. So the parents from the very beginning were, were great examples of setting that standard of faith, of reading the scriptures, of making sure to pray. 
I mean, Joseph Smith knew to pray. And then, like you mentioned, the faith. So when we have the tools, like the scriptures, to be able to search and to study, and then we recognize the power of prayer and that we can have faith that, the, that it will be answered, that is how we receive revelation. And that's what I've learned from Joseph Smith, this taking those little steps of learning, praying, and expecting or having faith that there's going to be an answer to be, to be the way, the, the formula. That's beautiful. Excellent. I love how you said that about exerting power. President Nelson has a great quote on power and searching like Joseph Smith does. He actually says, when you reach up for the Lord's power in your life with the same intensity that a drowning person has when grasping and gasping for air, power from Jesus Christ will be yours. And I sense that from Joseph. He's not just curious. He is drowning and he's confused, and he has this cognitive dissonance that he's dealing with. He's trying to find the truth, and he is going to use whatever it takes to do that. Is there any other thoughts on what we can learn from the story of Joseph Smith? I was thinking that also his heart was ready. And it kind of reminded me when I was 12, when I, I became a member of the church, and um, when I was listening to the missionaries in my living room, mm -hmm. they were telling me the simple story of this young man that I never heard before. Mm -hmm. All the details, they were not needed to hear mm -hmm. because it's just the spirit that you hear in that moment. I remember like uh, reading from James mm -hmm. and I remember the words and it's like, if you need help, just ask Heavenly Father. And I'll start reading more of the scriptures and I mm -hmm. thought that was true. When people asked me, I said, well, I can, tell you all these things, but the bottom line is you have to ask mm -hmm. for yourself and see for yourself and feel for yourself, mm -hmm. and you're going to know. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a video question. Hi, my name is Chelsea Ledger, and I'm currently in very sunny central Florida. I have lived in many places around the world and in America where I am not only the only member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, but I'm also the only Christian. And my question is, how can we maintain strong spiritual stamina as well as a strong sense of faith when we find ourselves the only person in our group or in our area that has a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel? So that's my question. I'm really excited to, to hear the answer to it. Is there anybody who can relate to this sister's circumstances? In college, none of my friends were all us. And that was totally okay. They didn't have the same standards that I, as I did, but we were all really respectful of one another. And I think that that's where we can establish a really good rapport with our friends or with people in our community. Because we can live our best lives, we can be our best selves, and let them do what they want to do. But let them know that we love them for who they are. There's absolutely value in, in just being yourself and allowing people to be themselves and not judging them and trying to you know, live a Christ-like life and trying to let Christ's light shine through you as much as it can. And I think the effect of that is that it will help people live a more full life and to see what the gospel can really bring to, to a person's life. I think Joseph was also bold, mm -hmm. but not ever overbearing. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you look at especially this 1838 version again, and, and he says in there, so it was with me. And he's talking about, as you were talking about, Scott, I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they in reality did speak to me. 
he, he created in himself and he was able to testify of what he knew to be true. Not in an overbearing way, not in an in-your-face way, not in a, you need to change, I'm right, you're wrong way. It was just simply, look, this is my experience. I saw God in Jesus Christ and I know it and God knows it. And I love you for your experience too. This has been a great discussion about some of the lessons we can learn from Joseph Smith seeking out uh, wisdom and revelation. I'm wondering if we can focus now a little bit more directly on what we can learn from the first vision. Scott, I know that you've looked at some of those first vision accounts, and for some people that's, that's something that's kind of tricky or something they don't really understand. So I, I think we should keep in mind that this is only one of several accounts of the first vision. This is the one that most church members are familiar with, of course, because it's in our canonized scriptures. Uh, but there are four, uh, what we call four primary accounts of the first vision uh, that have survived, uh, that are either authored or dictated by Joseph Smith. And then there are five uh, secondary accounts where individuals wrote, having heard Joseph Smith told this, tell the story. You can see, I just pulled up josephsmithpapers.org. It's a great site for this. Mm -hmm. And you can see on the left, you can see the actual handwriting. This is the, uh, what do I have? The 1832 edition. So what we were talking about, Joseph's writing. Joseph's handwriting. Himself about the first vision. And then you can see on the right side, uh, you can actually see that they have transcribed this so you can read for yourself in Joseph's own words what happened. And you can go through those and you can actually go back and look at each version, the handwriting, the exact handwriting, and then what's, what's, being, what's being said. Each of them focus on different things based on what Joseph is either remembering at the time, emphasizing at the time, the needs of his audience. And, uh, and, and I, I love that about the accounts of the first vision because it, it teaches me that as I um, share my own personal um, spiritual experiences, my understanding and, and, and use of that may change over time, how I grow and develop. And so something that may have meant something to me as a, as a 21 or 22-year-old means different to me now in my 40s. And so I, I see in the First Vision accounts many of the things that I, I feel myself and things that I want, that those that I love feel. There are certain passages in the First Vision accounts that talk about um, Joseph's anxieties. Um, he, I love that account. In one of the accounts, it uses that word. The, uh, his anxiety, his, his desire for forgiveness, his desire to know his standing before God. And, and in my own life, I've felt anxiety and, and frustration and, and difficulty and challenge and, and wanting to know where I stood before God. And I, I've tried to help others with my own children who feel those things. And, mm, yeah. and I absolutely love these, these times when prophets kind of share their, they're vulnerable with us. They share their anxieties and concerns and weaknesses and mistakes. And recognizing that God can do such great things through such an imperfect person like me or like Joseph Smith, it, it builds my faith. And I'm grateful that, the, that Joseph Smith was honest enough and vulnerable enough with us to, to record that aspect of his life. I'm wondering for you and the audience, like what, why does it matter to you that we have these different versions of the, of the first vision? And then what have, what have you learned? So I think it's really important that we have the accounts of different visions because Joseph was a dynamic person and had more to say and more to express than what we have just in scripture. Um, I find it really fun that he expressed different things to different people. And it helps me think a little bit more about how I can see things in different lights as I look through different parts of my life. Thank you. Yes, please. When, when you're trying to articulate something that's so undescribable, there, there's new words, there's new things that come to mind as you start to learn how to express yourself in different ways. And I think that, to me, resonates a lot with, with part of why there's, there's different versions of this, because as you, as you experience different things, you now have a different perspective on it. Thank you. Great comment. 
it seems like in reading the accounts in their totality, we get a more robust picture of what actually was going on. I think this has been a great discussion, but one lesson we should always take away, I think, from this account is that God can dispel darkness. That exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the powers of this enemy which seized upon me, I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself into destruction, not to an imaginary room, but to the power of some actual being from an unseen world. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. I would hate to forget or, or not mention that, that while there is opposition, um, God's power and light can dispel all darkness and, uh, and, and that he's real and that he answers prayers. I'd like to ex- maybe just expand on this a little bit. As, as Scott is saying, it's a beautiful introduction. So I just want to read what Joseph Smith says here. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defied all descriptions standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. I know from personal experience in my own life, I have had many opportunities to pray. I have had many opportunities to reflect upon Joseph Smith. I remember one time, in fact, I was sitting there with my sister. She had just found out she had breast cancer. My brother came in and said, Barb, your sister is, is very ill and she's likely going to pass away. And I remember I was just so like caught off guard by it. And I remember driving around the neighborhood that I was in and I was probably in my late teens, early 20s before my mission. And I remember thinking to myself, is this really true? Did this really happen? Is this church true? And I remember on this particular occasion, sitting there in a park, very dark outside, and then having this very, very strong impression, which I've had a number of times, It is true, Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus Christ in that sacred grove. And if Joseph saw God and Jesus Christ in that sacred grove, your testimony has been built off of that for years. Not everyone's testimony has. But in my case, knowing that Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus Christ also showed me that the Book of Mormon was true, also showed me that God lives, also showed me that I can repent and that I can continue to trust in him. All because of a vision that Joseph Smith had so many years ago. So for you, I just want to ask, what impact has this experience of Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove had on you and your lives? Well, it's helped me know how much I can rely on God. One of my favorite primary songs is called My Own Sacred Grove. And one part in it says, Heavenly Father is there, ready to answer my prayer. Um, He answered Joseph uh, Smith's prayer in an unbelievable way. Although we most likely won't have such a big vision as that, we... Uh, Heavenly Father will still answer our prayers. He loves us so much. He shows his love for us in in every possible way. He knows us. He called Joseph Smith by name, right? He knew who he was. He knew his imperfections. He knew he was just a young man. He knew his limitations and knowledge. And yet he still reached out to him and called him by name. So Elder David A. Bednar wrote a song a couple years ago called One by One. And it talks about how when Christ came to the Americas, he greeted them and he called them one by one. It talks about how he like sat with the children. And I just think it's similar to that, that um, he would answer a 14 year old boy's prayer because he was thinking about the faith that children have and how he was saying, in, like in the scriptures, it's been said, have faith like unto a little child. I think sometimes we think, well, sure, he knew Joseph by name because he was the prophet of the restoration. but. In one of the First Vision accounts, Joseph emphasizes that one thing he knew about God was that God was no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yes, he knows Joseph's name, but Joseph knows that he knows everybody's name. Yeah. That God doesn't just respect those who are called to be future prophets or whatever. That yeah. God has no respecter of persons. He'll answer everyone. Yeah. Um, and he knows each of us. been fun to have some that are about that age as Joseph Smith, too. So, thank you. Yeah, you look around this room and you can see some of the younger audience members. And just an invitation for all people, but especially those of you perhaps who are a little bit younger, to go to the Lord. Go to our Heavenly Father. Ask Him in prayer. Uh, continue to strengthen your testimony. Reach up to him, and he will answer your prayers. We do really appreciate your thoughts and comments. Scott, we appreciate you, especially with your insights. Thank you for your testimonies and for your questions and, and for your time. And to those of you at home, thank you for sharing your comments and questions and suggestions on social media. We'd love to have you in the studio with us sometime, but if you can't, we hope you'll join us next week on Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.